Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Stephen Gluck. He's a professor in the Division of Nephrology at uh, UCSF, University of California, San Francisco. Uh, he's focused on acute and chronic kidney disease, electrolyte disorders, kidney stones, outpatient and home dialysis. So uh, we're going to talk about that stuff. So, Stephen, thanks for coming. I'm sure my pleasure. Yeah. Tell me about your uh, your clinical work. What what kind of patients do you see? And, you know, we'll talk about trends and all that good stuff. Uh, yes, I'm, uh, I'm a general nephrologist in the division. Uh, so uh, quite a bit of my time is spent seeing uh, outpatient dialysis patients. And that includes uh, patients in what's called in-center hemodialysis, where patients go to a clinic several times a week, and also home dialysis, and that includes uh, both uh, peritoneal dialysis and home hemodialysis. I have an outpatient clinic uh, two days a week where I see patients with a variety of different kidney disorders, uh, high, high blood pressure, diabetic kidney disease, uh, um, inflammatory diseases of the kidneys like glomerulonephritis, polycystic kidney disease, and uh, uh, electrolyte disorders of various sorts. And then I also do inpatient consulting at the UCSF Medical Center, uh, seeing inpatients with acute and chronic kidney failure uh, and uh, other um, acute and chronic kidney conditions uh, that, that um, we're asked to consult on. What are, uh, I don't know, I guess, what are the biggest and baddest uh, kidney conditions that you, you see? Are they diabetes related or like what, you know, what are, what's out there? Well, the number one cause for patients needing to go on dialysis is diabetes, uh, diabetic kidney disease. So that, that's by far the most prevalent serious kidney disease uh, that, that any nephrology sees. Uh, and it's a, it's a challenging disease. Uh, uh, even a lot of times, even despite all our best efforts, patients end up with uh, progressive kidney disease and uh, end up on dialysis. Uh, we've had there have been some developments in the field recently that new some new uh, classes of drugs that are available that uh, offer a lot of promise. Um, but I, that's that's clearly the most uh, serious of the kidney diseases we see. Then we see uh, a lot of acute renal failure uh, in the hospital, but for example, following surgery, uh, uh, gastrointestinal or thoracic surgery, uh, or uh, associated with acute medical illnesses. Uh, sure, a lot of people have heard about kidney failure associated with COVID-19 infections, so we do see that. And, but uh, it have, we see kidney failure associated with other acute uh, serious infections as well. So. Um I don't know if people know very much about dialysis. What what is it like? What does the process do? And you know, what are some of the basics for people that don't know? Dialysis is, um, I guess, the the general term that's now used for dialysis is renal replacement therapy. So essentially, it's therapies that are meant to replace the function of the kidneys when the kidneys aren't working. So the kidneys have uh, 
a number of different functions. They control the volume and composition of what's called the extracellular fluid. The <clears throat> extracellular fluid is the um, fluid that's uh, in our tissues and also in our bloodstream. Uh, so the kidneys control the electrolyte composition. The, uh, they, they remove waste products. Uh, they control the amount of fluid so that uh, there's not either too little or, or too much fluid in the system. And then they also have other um, hormonal type functions. For example, they make a substance called erythropoietin that's necessary for red blood cell production. They um, are responsible for converting the uh, precursor form of vitamin D <clears throat> to the active form of vitamin D. And they have a, a number of other uh, important functions as well. So typical dialysis, when a person gets it, what, three times a week, and it takes several hours each time to go and, and have the dialysis done? Uh, yeah, that's that's right. Uh, most patients who do what's called in-center hemodialysis go into a dialysis clinic three days a week, and each treatment is usually between three and four hours long. Uh, during the procedure, the um, blood is removed from the, the patient. It's passed through a... Um, special type of filter, um, which, is, which allows um, waste products to go across it, but not, but retains blood proteins and red blood cells. And then what's called a dialysating sort of cleansing fluid, it flows through uh, surrounding the, the little capillaries that the blood goes through and uh, allows the waste products to pass across this, the mem this membrane and be removed from the body. And then the blood that's cleaned is returned back to the patient. And then during that same procedure, um, the special filter uh, is designed so that negative pressure can be put on it to create, draw fluid out from the capillaries and, and, and remove it so that during the treatment, patient's blood is cleaned and also excess fluid is removed. What constitutes the excess fluid? What's in it? Is it just water or other substances? It's just tissue fluid. All of our tissues, our, our muscles, our or, or internal organs, they're all bathed in a tissue fluid that medical terms is referred to as the extracellular fluid. And so that extracellular fluid um, composition has to be kept just right for cells to function normally. The, the sodium concentration has to be kept at a certain range, the potassium concentration, calcium, a number of other um, important um, uh, minerals and uh, constituents of fluid have to be kept in a certain range uh, to, to maintain normal cellular function. And and most of that adjustment is carried out by the kidney. So, okay, I guess it, it could also be interstitial fluid. Could it be called that? Yes, it'd be interstitial fluid. That would, that, that would be a, another way to describe it. So in dialysis, what are the main parameters that they're looking at in the person and what levels need to be adjusted? You know, what are some examples? Well, we look at a number of uh, tests at least once a month and usually more often. Uh, we look at the uh, electrolyte composition of the, of the blood, especially the blood potassium, blood bicarbonate, blood sodium. Uh, we look at um, waste products that accumulate in the blood. And the two main waste products we look at are urea and uh, creatinine. The urea is a uh, breakdown product of protein breakdown that um, takes the nitrogen that comes from, from protein breakdown and converts it into this relatively inert um, molecule urea that, and then uh, 
in, in normal people that that's just excreted in the urine. Uh, so that uh, during dialysis, the urea is removed by dialysis. And creatinine is a it's less important as a waste product, but it's used as a marker for uh, level of kidney function. Uh, creatinine is a waste product produced by muscle that's excreted by the kidneys, um, and we use it. Uh, we follow the levels of creatinine to, to as an indicator when uh, to determine if patients have a defect in kidney filtration function. That's also removed during dialysis. Uh, then we have. Um, a number of other important tests that we look at. Um, one is uh, we look at the um, blood count in patients. So as I mentioned before, the kidneys make this substance erythropoietin that's necessary for red blood cell production. Uh, so that uh, many or most patients with kidney disease develop a very um, significant anemia and need to uh, receive injections or infusions of erythropoietin erythropoietin produced um, by um, pharmaceutical companies that, um, to replace the, the production by the kidneys and maintain the, the uh, normal blood count. To look at bone metabolism, um, one of the um, important functions of the kidneys is to remove phosphate. That's an uh, important component of uh, the diet and is excreted by the kidneys, but in patients with uh, impaired kidney function, phosphorus builds up in the blood and then can lead to some um, a variety of different effects, uh, such as bone disease and calcification of the blood vessels. So it's important that the dialysis removes phosphate. Uh, we also check on uh, these um, secondary effects or, or effects of, of the high phosphorus to, to prevent uh, adverse effects from it. For example, one of the effects of phosphate is to stimulate the production of this hormone called parathyroid hormone. It's a hormone produced by little glands behind the thyroid gland called the parathyroid um, glands. Their principal function is to control the blood calcium level. But when the blood phosphorus goes up, it stimulates these uh, glands and they can start producing uh, excessive amounts of, uh, of their hormone, parathyroid hormone. And that in turn can uh, affect the bones and lead to bone disease. So that's another uh, one of the tests that we follow. And we also follow patients' uh, nutrition uh, and a number of other uh, um, indicators of, of general metabolic health. So uh, why is there excess uh, interstitial fluid or extracellular fluid? Is it just because that normally would come out through urination? Or is there an excess accumulation for other reasons? Yes, you've got that exactly right. The, what the, the kidneys um, uh, respond to sensors in the body that sense the amount of extracellular fluid. So in um, patients with normal kidneys, uh, those sensors uh, tell the kidneys to stop absorbing salt and water. And so the excess fluid that comes in for, from your diet, for example, gets excreted in the urine. But when patients have kidney disease, that sensing and feedback system is impaired so the kidneys no longer excrete uh, the amount of fluid uh, that, to balance what's coming in. And that can lead to uh, uh, sustained uh, excessive fluid in the body. And that, that can cause high blood pressure and other uh, adverse effects. So how much extra fluid in a typical dialysis session how much fluid needs to be taken off and not returned? Each dialysis patient, um, 
when they come in, the first thing that they do is they get weighed. And uh, so uh, the purpose of that is to determine how much fluid has been gained in between each dialysis session. So each, in each patient, we um, try to determine what's called a dry weight. And that's, that's the weight where uh, the excess fluid has been removed, but not too much fluid. So they don't, they don't have an excess, but we haven't removed so much fluid that they're actually dehydrated. So that each time a patient comes in, they, they're weighed. And then we look at the difference in weight between their dry weight and their weight um, in the clinic prior to dialysis. And that determines how much fluid is removed. Well, are you removing it all through the blood? Or are you also somehow able to collect the interstitial fluid through another mechanism? All of it comes out through the blood. Uh, that's really um, the only access we have for removal of extracellular fluid is the, is the bloodstream. Uh, I should say that's the only method for uh, hemodialysis. There's another method of dialysis called peritoneal dialysis that we haven't discussed that, that doesn't require access to the blood. But for patients in dialysis clinics, it's all done um, through the blood. So. How would, uh, I mean, wouldn't that be dangerous because the blood would get diluted with all this fluid that's not normally there, that's out of the blood into the interstitium. So, I mean, I, I think that would, I don't know, like the blood cell count in a given volume of blood would go down, I think, by, you know, uh, the density of it. All the all the factors in blood would be diluted by this, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, so... Um, one of the one of the important things is we have to caution patients to they have to be on fluid restriction, also salt restriction, to prevent excess fluid gain in between each dialysis treatment. Otherwise, they can have exactly the problem you outlined there. Their their um, blood cell count can go down because of dilution. But even more importantly than that, it can raise the blood pressure, and then fluid can also build up, for example, in the lungs and uh, can cause. Um, shortness of breath and lead to a hospital admission. So what happens in peritoneal dialysis? How is it different? So in peritoneal dialysis, no blood is involved. And uh, patients who do that have a catheter that's placed in the peritoneum. Uh, the peritoneum is a membrane that lines the intestine. That's sort of like a, a, a collapsed uh, Ziploc bag, if you will. Uh, so you took a Ziploc bag and you kind of rubbed it between your fingers. You could you know, rub one one side of the bag over the other and be kind of slippery. Well, the peritoneum, it's, it's a similar principle. The peritoneum uh, lines the intestines like a, like a collapsed sac and, and provides kind of a lubricating mechanism for the intestines to glide over each other. But um, it's, it's a potential space. It, you know, it's, it's a collapsed space, but uh, in peritoneal dialysis, fluid is put into the peritoneum and uh, used as a method for removing waste products and fluid. So the way it's done is that the peritoneal dialysis fluid that's used has a very high glucose concentration. The glucose has uh, it um, draws fluid out through uh, what's called an osmotic effect. So if you want to understand osmotic effect, just think about if you put pure sugar on your tongue and if you, your tongue feels kind of dried out, that's because the, the sugar draws water out of your tongue and, and kind of dehydrates the, the tongue muscle. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, these, these um, solutions that contain a high amount of uh, sugar in them, glucose, 
do the same thing. The high sugar concentration draws water out of the tissues, and that's uh, the way it removes fluid from the body. And then also the fluid itself has no waste products in it, so uh, the waste products in the blood kind of leach out through this peritoneal membrane into the uh, peritoneal dialysate fluid, and that so that the the um, peritoneal dialysis removes fluid through the osmotic effect of the sugar, and then also removes waste products because it because of the concentration difference and the, the um, leaching of waste products from the blood into the dialysate. It seems like there's a uh, you know not a very nice trade-off between the methods. Why not do a combination of a little bit of uh, blood filtration and some peritoneal, so that you don't have to have this seesaw effect or this you know forcing the the waste products and everything through different pathways they may not normally go through. That's an interesting idea. Uh, uh, I have ne- personally never seen any patient who was doing both peritoneal and hemodialysis, but, but your, what, what you point out is right. Each of the, the methods has its own advantages and disadvantages. Uh, the big advantage of peritoneal dialysis is patients do it at home. Uh, they, have, they, they don't have to be on a fixed schedule to go to a dialysis clinic. Uh, most of the patients do it at night, so most of the patients on peritoneal dialysis they have a little machine called a cycler that takes the, the, the fluid and flushes it in and out of the peritoneum uh, during the night while the patients asleep. So the patients basically have the whole day free. Uh, and then also, um, since it's done every day, um, in contrast to the, the hemodialysis where the treatments are only done three days a week, so that um, in, in many instances, it gives the patients a little more leeway on their diet and the amount of uh, fluid they can drink. And with regular dialysis being done three days a week, um, you would get a profile of build-up, release, build-up, release, build-up, release. And from what I've heard, when people have to take a lot of fluid, you know, when a lot of fluid has to be taken off, they usually end up with, you know, maybe uh, heart issues temporarily or faintness or other issues. So, it seems like the more often the better, but then again, there's the trade-off of all the time spent and, uh, you know, the method of dialysis as well. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, um, you're right. If ideally, you'd want to do the dialysis every day uh, just, you know, to, to more closely simulate the functions of the kidney, which are removing fluid uh, 24 hours a day. But um, just, and if you think about it, Patients who go in for dialysis, they're all they're having all the fluid they gain for 48 hours or more removed over a three-hour period. So you're right; that does put a big stress on the cardiovascular system. And it's not uncommon for patients to have a drop in their blood pressure uh, and 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 to to have you know, symptoms feel terrible or have cramps or sometimes even faint if uh, too much fluid needs to be removed. So that is an advantage of perineal dialysis that the fluid is removed over a longer period of time, about eight hours per day, and it's done every day of the week, um, which which tends to put less stress on the cardiovascular system. Yeah, but again, who would want to do that? Um, what happens to the ureters and the bladder and everything, and you know the, the you know the the tube going through the penis, the tube going through the uh, the you know the vagina right to the end? I mean, if no urine goes through it. What happens to it, to the whole plumbing? That's a good question. Uh, amazingly enough, uh, they remain functional. So patients with even no urine output still maintain their, their urethra, which is the tube you're referring to, stays open. And then 
For example, if they get a kidney transplant even years after they've stopped making any urine, it's still their bladder and, and uh, urethra can still function completely normally. So for people that don't produce any urine, do they have a protocol where they cycle fluid through them so that they don't, uh, you know, the tissue inside doesn't, I don't know what happens to like what happens to it? What happens to a bladder that's not used for years? It just stays uh, collapsed. There's a little bit of fluid that's sometimes secreted into the bladder, but uh, the, the urethra, the, pa- the uh, urinary path- passageway stays open and the bladder retains its ability to contract. So even after patients who, um, even, even patients who have had no urine production for years, uh, once they get a kidney transplant, can, can uh, still have normal bladder function and normal urethra. Is there any need to periodically, again, cycle fluid through there, like no, flushing no. the system or no? no? No, no, there's no need to do that. I was just going to say, in fact, we like to avoid any type of um, procedures that, for example, catheterization or anything um, for patients who make little or no urine just to avoid possibility of uh, introducing bacteria that could cause an infection. It must be weird if you haven't peed in years and then all of a sudden you pee for the first time. Have you ever talked to patients that do that and do they tell you anything special? Yeah, um, actually they, they do say exactly that. They say that they, I've heard quite a few patients after they got a transplant remark about uh, how wonderful it was to feel the urge to urinate again. Yeah, that's crazy. What's some of the new protocols or things that are going on uh, around dialysis that are helping people? Well, uh, dialysis technology is constantly um, evolving and improving. Um, There have been a lot of changes over the years. Uh, The dialyzers themselves are getting more efficient at uh, removing uh, waste products. Uh, um, The waste products that are removed uh, are different sizes. Some of them are very tiny molecules. Some of them are larger molecules. the um, composition of the membrane has changed over the years to allow removal of some of the larger molecules, and that, that prevents some of the long-term complications of the dialysis. Uh, we're getting uh, better about um, understanding uh, what the limits are of fluid removal and trying to uh, work with patients to, to limit the amount of fluid they, that they gain between treatments to uh, reduce some of the complications we've talked about, about excessive fluid removal. And um, uh, the dialysis machines have some newer sensor technologies, like, uh, for example, one of the newer um, technologies that's that's been, that's starting to be uh, more u- more frequently used is something called a crit line or hematocrit line that monitors the blood concentration as you do dialysis. And uh, that's a way to, another way to, uh, be alerted whether someone's having an excessive rate of fluid removal. Uh, there are some of the newer dialysis machines also test for uh, the equivalent of the urea concentration of the blood so that we have an idea of uh, how um, how well the blood is being cleaned during the course of the dialysis as opposed to having to wait for uh, blood testing to be done to determine that. So uh, for dialysis, there's a number of different um, uh, advances in dialysis technology, and it's a constantly evolving field. And then, um, we haven't talked about it much, but what are what are the other major renal issues that people have, and why? There are many different causes of loss of kidney function and, and uh, ultimate need for dialysis. We talked about diabetes being by far the uh, the most 
the, the most common cause of kidney failure. Uh, the second most common cause of kidney failure is high blood pressure, uncontrolled high blood pressure. And third is uh, a category of diseases called glomerulonephritis. So glomerulonephritis is that, that word comes from the word glomerulus. Uh, glomerulus is the medical term that's used for the little filters in the kidney that, that filter that in the kidney tissue that actually filter the blood. And when they get inflamed, we call that glomerulonephritis itis uh, suffix indicates inflammation. There are a whole variety of different causes of glomerulonephritis. Uh, for example, uh, lupus, which is an a autoimmune disease that some people may have heard of, that's one of the more common types of glomerulonephritis. Worldwide, the most common type of glomerulonephritis is um, a disease called IgA nephropathy. That's IgA is a, is short for immunoglobulin A, um, which is a one of the blood um, antibody types that um, is involved in. Um, fighting infections on tissue surfaces. And in the disease IgA nephropathy, it gets deposited in the uh, kidney filters that the marioline causes uh, inflammation and can lead to kidney failure. Uh, there are a number of other types of glomerulonephritis, too, you know, too numerous to mention here. I, I could go through a whole list of names of them, but some of them are what we call primary glomerulonephritis, where we, there's no underlying cause for it that can be identified for and some of them are, are what are called secondary glomerulonephritis, which are glomerulonephritis that's associated with a, with a, um, an underlying systemic disease. But for example, hepatitis, either hepatitis B and hepatitis C can uh, frequently affect the kidneys because of the inflammation that's associated with the hepatitis and that, and that can lead to progressive uh, kidney disease or um, other chronic infections can lead to inflammation in the kidneys, like, for example, tuberculosis or other chronic infection. So that's, that's, just, a, that's a, just a small part of the, the huge list of causes of glomerulonephritis. Then uh, after that, we have a, a variety of genetic diseases that can cause kidney disease, which are um, the most common one of that is, would be polycystic kidney disease, which is a disorder that's where the kidneys um, are filled with enlarging cysts um, that over time have replaced the, the normal kidney tissue and lead to um, complete loss of kidney function and then frequently the need for dialysis. But there, there are a number of other genetic kidney diseases that can also affect the kidneys, uh, like for example, congenital developmental abnormalities of the kidneys or, um, or the spinal cord that can lead to kidney disease and a number of others. So, um, I don't know, where the big developments in, uh, in kidney function are going to be, what, around dialysis, or what, what areas do they seem to be focused in? We have not really had a lot of um, effective treatments for kidney disease, for, for many kidney diseases. There, some of the, the glomerular diseases I mentioned, uh, there are some, some of, for some of those diseases, there are some very effective treatments, so that's one exception, but for a lot of diseases, like, for example, mentioned uh, diabetic kidney disease or uh, some of the other, a lot of the other um, causes of kidney disease. We have some agents that are effective for slowing down the rate of kidney disease, but don't uh, prevent the ultimate progression to need for dialysis. But we do have, there are some uh, promising new developments that are coming out that uh, might offer us actual uh, medications to allow us to 
really slow the slow the progression of kidney disease down a lot, and, and hopefully keep uh, some of these patients off of dialysis. So, for example, one of the one of the uh, most important ones that's come out recently are a class of drugs called um, sodium glucose uh, co-transporter two inhibitors. So, abbreviated as SGLT2 inhibitors. Those are the sodium glucose co-transport. It's a, it's a protein in the kidney that takes the glucose that's filtered by the, the kidney and um, allows the tubules to reabsorb the glucose so that it doesn't go out into the urine. And these drugs block that transporter, that, that protein that's involved in the glucose reabsorption. Uh, and it turns out that um, a number of studies have been done now that show that it has a dramatic effect on reducing the rate of progression of kidney disease and also has other very beneficial effects, like, for example, preventing against heart disease. So that, that's a, a very important new development in the kidney treatment field. And then there's some other medications that are under development now to look at um, that that are designed to inhibit scar tissue from building up in the kidneys, and we probably will be seeing those um, being approved and starting to be incorporated in nephrology uh, as a, another way of preventing progression of kidney disease. Very good. Well, what's the best way, Steve, for uh, people to find out more about your clinical work and to find out about kidney disease in general? Where can they go? UCSF does have a website that has um, all the uh, UCSF faculty, including me. Uh, that's a way to. That's one way. Uh, or people can. Um, that I don't. I don't think I don't have a personal website uh, available for contact. But um, anyone who's who wants more information or who wants a consultation or uh, would like to. Uh, discuss any of this with me can can reach me through through the uh, UCSF pathology website. Okay, well, very good. Well, Stephen, thanks for coming, and I appreciate it. Um, you know, it's been a good call. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, the opportunity to speak to you today. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.